Tuesday, October 23rd, 2008. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's Neurobiology Podcast. Our guest today is Dr. Gary Westbrook, who is co-director and a senior scientist at the Volum Institute at Oregon Health and Sciences University. Hello. Hi, Gary. Uh, around the room, we have Charlie Wilson. Good afternoon. Carlos Palladini. Hello. Gary Galfo. Hello. And Nicole Witcha. Hi. And I'm Salma Karashi. Thanks for joining us, guys. Um, so, Gary, alongside your considerable body of research, you've had a long editorial career at the Journal of Neuroscience, so I thought um, it fitting to take this opportunity to open with a bit of a discussion about publishing before we move to your actual science. First off, I just, I just wanted to ask you from your vantage point as both a scientist and an editor of, of a large-scale international journal, what do you believe is the primary goal of scientific publication? Is it just to disseminate research, to commercialize it, to shape future endeavor, define what's hot? I mean, how do you, how do you see the priorities? Well, I think that the scientific field should really drive what's in the literature and not the other way around. So, I mean, my own interest in, in getting involved in journals was specifically that, that I didn't want, I didn't want to be uh, driven by what um, certain publishers would want to publish, but let the scientists actually determine it. And, and in journals where the, the process of selection is actually done by scientists, those were my, my motivations for getting involved to begin with. So the, but the publishing world seems to be populated by, um, by at least two very different animals that seem to me to have two very different agendas. So I'm talking about commercial versus nonprofit organization or society-based journals. Is this accurate, first of all? And if so, could you paint the picture of how you see this shaping current publishing trends? Or yeah, I think, of course, it varies a bit across disciplines. Different mm -hmm. Within neuroscience, I think what you described is, is pretty accurate. Um, and I think the motivations for publishers, as opposed to societies, is very different. And therefore, the result is actually quite different in terms of what drives publication of particular kinds of material in one type of journal versus the other. And my own bias is toward society-based journals because uh, I think they're, the, at, at least in part, the, the motivation for publishing things is largely based on the science, not on the, the, uh, the implied trendiness of the science. And, uh, and also, in a society journal, you have a better opportunity to um, make selections with people who are closer to the subject than is really possible in at least very broad scale um, commercial journals. Charlie? At this point, it seems like all the commercial journals have just won, you know? I mean, everybody's uh, aspirations seem to be, all young people's aspirations seem to be published in nature, nature neuroscience, and neuron. And uh, uh, I'm constantly being lobbied by the people in my lab to submit everything to one of those, or, oh, I left out science, all of which are commercial, and um, how did that happen? How did they get the upper hand that way over the Journal of Physiology or something that used to be our most important journal? Everybody, when I was a graduate student, wanted to publish in Journal of Physiology. Um, do you know how? Well, I think one of the things was... Um, like a lot of things, scientists as scientists, we kind of ignored things that we should have paid more attention to. That's one thing. Um, I think in the case of the Journal of Physiology, what happened was they just didn't attend to the details, such as reviewing 
manuscripts in a timely manner, for example, uh, and that turned off a lot of people, myself included. Um, and, and that's not true now. This is we're talking some years ago. Um, but I think we didn't attend in society journals to a lot of things that are important, like doing things in an expedient way. And commercial journals were did a better job of presenting the material, not only how quickly it was reviewed, but also in how they presented it. They tried to, you know, we all desire, I think the, the, what we all want is for other people um, to see our work. So the visibility, I think, is, is the real um, important aspect of publishing. You don't want to publish in a journal that nobody reads because then no one sees your work. Even, you know, maybe the few people that are exactly interested in your work uh, can find it by, you know, a search. But we all want visibility, and I think the commercial journals did not do a good job. I mean, the, uh, excuse me, the, the society-based journals didn't do a good job of, of uh, pushing those aspects of things and making it, making it visible. I think also the other things that the commercial journals did well is you want a manageable size issue. And um, that, that's what makes, uh, what makes a, uh, separates a magazine from a journal. There are multiple things, but one really important thing is that you can sort of pick, pick up a, a magazine and browse it. So you can kind of flip through, be it, you know, on the web or in paper form. And so something that's shorter uh, is easier to handle. And that was true of most, and still remains true of most of the commercial journals. Whereas the uh, Journal of Biological Chemistry, for example, is not is not a browsable journal. It's huge, uh, and so uh, you know, as an author, you feel like your work is, in some sense, uh, more buried, at least less visible. And so, I think those differences. The commercial journals have been very good at at playing on that. Uh, you know, slick presentations, better websites, etc., to you know improve the visibility. Um, and I think that's uh, something that is is not can be overcome. Nicole, so in, in compensating for some of the shortness of the commercial journals, because part of the problem is since they're so short, a lot of the methodology that's left out, some of the details are left out. So, the what do you see the value of the internet now becoming sort of supplementary materials and things like that in in converting it into a hybrid journal where you can have both the shortness of the quick read and and the details of yeah, well, I mean, I think um, as in, from an editorial point of view, <coughs> supplementary materials are a big problem because uh, I'm no longer an editor, but I can speak to the period when I was, um, you know, because supplementary materials often aren't reviewed with the same rigor that the, the rest of the article is reviewed, despite the best efforts of the editorial assistant, the editor. Uh, it's very easy to tell often that reviewers have not looked at all at the supplementary material. Um, and so you essentially have, in some cases, almost unrefereed material there. So I think that's a potential really big problem. Um, in terms of actually making making things shorter, one of the things I did, which is kind of a, tr a gimmick, you might call it, but is I took when I took over uh, as for the journal Neuroscience, I changed to weekly publication uh, right away in which have the size of each set of issues and not be, the amount of material didn't really change but our you know your ability to sort of digest an issue's worth was improved quite a lot by that and also the ability of your friends and colleagues to scan a table of contents and see your paper therefore improved and to me that 
again, speaks to this visibility issue. And so I think there are things like that. I think splitting up or trying to push th- some things apart is a bit of a problem from the review standpoint. It's less of a problem, per- perhaps, from the production standpoint, because it really isn't critical in all cases to read every methodological detail to get what you need from an article, it, assuming you're, you believe that the review process was competent and that the work is actually uh, believable. So what about the idea of impact factor? So universities and um, the NIH are increasingly talking about impact factor now, and how has that played out in terms of the commercial versus society uh, journal? Well, of course, it's used as a tool by journals to sell subscriptions. So uh, would, would you say that the commercial journals have, have sort of excelled at the... Uh, at the impact factor game, or is, is that definitely? True? Yeah, uh, and of course, you know the thing is, um, impact factor is the average for that journal. So, um, you know, if you take any journal, Nature Journal, Neuroscience, any other journal, and you plot the number of citations versus the number of articles, it's a skewed distribution. So that you know there are a small number of articles that are cited a lot of times that raise the average substantially. Um, so this is very, very apparent uh, for, um, you know, nature or science. Um, so there are a lot of, of nature or science articles that really aren't cited all that much, but the average is pulled up um, by these other articles. And so, you know, the question is for an individual scientist, you know, what is the value of a journal's impact factor to you as a scientist or grant writer or an applicant for a job or, a, you know, putting in your promotion package? And the answer is it's pretty low because it's really the impact of your papers that is really the key issue, not the average impact factor of the journal. And for some reason that seems, it's such a simple statistical concept and it seems so hard for us to to grasp that. Carly. Yeah, I think that I agree with that because now a lot of places are, not looking at what is the impact factor of the journals that you actually publish in, but what is your impact factor specifically, where they take the citation index of your papers and average them out over your lifetime. So I, I agree with that, I think. That might help move things away from always wanting to go into the highest journals, which I admit freely that that is what I want to do right now. But. <laughs> well, with, with hiring, it's a little trickier because... Yeah. The papers written by some new assistant professor applicant haven't had time to for us to assess their impact. So I think the problem is most severe in the hiring business, where we we really ought to read the applicants' papers ourselves and judge the quality of them ourselves, mm-hmm. rather than using any kind of statistical measure of their worth as judged by the rest of the community because there just isn't data available. And that, if we're hiring somebody in neuroscience in our department, we ought to be able to assess that those candidates' work ourselves. We're neuroscientists. I mean, it doesn't seem that hard, but it seems that nobody wants to take that responsibility, or at least candidates have the feeling that that isn't the way they're being judged. I think a lot of the time mm-hmm. they're right. I think one one of the more insidious parts of the process is is whether the way the 
publication system is set up actually influences how the science is done. Exactly. That, that, that I think, is a not a good thing. And I, I think that has happened, that there is a formula in some cases for what constitutes a, a paper for a certain journal. Like, for, It's a little less true now than it maybe was a few years ago, but there was a, there was a sense at one point that certain journals, you had to have a multidiscipline, quote, multidisciplinary approach. And so we saw a lot of papers where you, know, you would study some cellular or molecular phenomenon, and then there would be one figure of a behavioral experiment, for example, and it was a you know a single behavioral experiment that you know is probably not very good way of doing behavior in any circumstance, but it was sort of in there, and you could it could tell it was just the behavioral experiment to make this paper sort of give the aura of a comprehensive multidisciplinary approach, and I think that would that sort of thing was an example of the the journal. Um, selection process driving the science. I think that's a really, really bad thing. So you say this is this trend has changed now. Well, I think that that uh, that particular thing I think has changed a little bit, but I th- I don't think the general phenomenon has changed. That there's still a formula that you can imagine using for certain for certain journals, and certainly the degree to which you uh, speculate beyond. Um, the realm of what your experiments actually go uh, is different in different uh, different journals. So that you know, uh, you'd maybe you'd like to just at least I would like to pers- think that people would like to just lay out their story and let the reader decide. Um, but in many cases, you're in some journals, you're almost dragged um, through, the, you know, to, told what to to think. And so I think that's essentially being driven by the feeling that you have to overhype the work in order to have it published in certain places. Mm-hmm. What do you think about accessibility? So some of these uh, commercial journals versus society-based, uh, um, one of their uh, criteria is to, to make it generally accessible to scientists. Um, why doesn't societies um, tend to have that kind of language? Don't you think that that's a, a better way of writing uh, scientific papers? That it's, it's you mean to make them readily available? Is that what you no, mean? No, no, uh, readable. Oh, you, you, more readable. Readable. Oh, I see. Mean. Oh, yeah. So that there's actually two, both of which I think are worth talking yeah. about. But the readability is um, such an enormous problem that, um, you know, the, the, the number of papers that are well-written, at least from my own personal experience is, as an editor, is... is is way too small, and but doing anything about that from at an editorial level for the society to do something about that is just so enormous in, in its scope. It's hard to imagine how, how to do that in terms of the, um, you know, let's say line editing. And now you probably had your own experience where a journal line edits something for you, and, and it no longer says what you thought it said. Um, and so it's, there's a real danger in someone else editing the work. Um, one of the things that, that, that I tried to do, uh, which is now unfortunately no longer going, is we ran writing workshops at the Society for Neuroscience meeting uh, for about eight years or so when I was the editor. Um, and we could handle maybe 60, 80 people, two sessions of 30 or so, and go over 
you know, really pretty fundamental aspects of English usage and, and simple things that sentence structure and, and how to structure a manuscript also, what things to do in terms of laying out figures, laying out the storyline, what's in a discussion, things like that, that I think are not, a lot of people don't seem to grasp the, the pretty easy uh, things. And I, the reason societies haven't done it, I think, is just time and, and it's costly to do it. I think that's very important because of just the the globalness of, of science these days, right? With uh, the, uh, the internet and uh, there's just more people accessing uh, science and there's just more of a complicated internet or network of people. So we have to maybe push that. How about the other thing that's open access? Access to the other topic. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I'm an all in favor of that. I mean, I, I, at some level, of course, for a society journal, the one problem is if um, some societies, a part of their existence is based on subscriptions to their journal. Now, in the case of um, Society for Neuroscience, the journal Neuroscience is essentially part of your membership in the journal. So um, this, the existence of the journal is not dependent on subscriptions. It's essentially built in. Um, but it is dependent on the institutional subscriptions. So uh, it varies between journals. In, in our case, roughly half of the revenue was institutional subscriptions. So if, if you go to open access, eventually that will go away. So, Could you actually define open access? Well, it just means that when the, when the uh, paper is published, it's available to anyone that has Internet access. Mm -hmm. So uh, anyone with a laptop and Wi-Fi... Uh, could be read the entire article. Um, and the NIH basically twisting arms in order to make that a reality. Well, in, in the case, yes, yeah, some journals were in compliance long before NIH cared. And Journal of Neuroscience was in compliance before the six-month open access idea, um, um, in be even before NIH got into the, um, the debate about that. But I think the problem was really the commercial journals did not make um, things available, and it's even more of a problem for older materials. So, um, if you want uh, some, if you have a subscription to a, uh, a journal, you may or may not be able to get access to the older material. And so, a lot of society journals have have now gone back, and uh, including the Journal of Neuroscience, and uh, scanned all the old uh, material and and put it on the internet for free. So, when when it means anything older than six months is available, that means in the case of journal neuroscience, anything older than six months back to 1981 when the journal first came into existence. Or for science, it means back, you know, 80 years or, or whatever. That so. was so important. At least it's important to those of us who were publishing before six years ago because it seemed for a little while as though everything was going to just disappear. It wasn't going to ever be cited again. It was going to have to be redone just because people couldn't read it online. The one other comment I wanted to make about open access is the the real problem right now is the the where the revenue comes from that replaces the in, the institutional subscription, and uh, if you notice the discussion about open access is sort of uh, died out a, a, along the same time course as the NIH budget getting smaller because you know essentially it would probably come from us it would come from the scientists uh, one directly or indirectly. And, um, you know, so that 
that's a substantial cost. It's a few thousand dollars usually per article. And um, so, you know, going completely to open access, one has to question whether where the revenue is going to come from and whether um, how much the public needs to know um, every article the day it's released isn't you know, in the neuroscience community, most of us are members of the Society for Neuroscience, and therefore we have uh, access. It's mostly a problem for other people. So how to do that and how to generate that money is still a discussion. So the, the companies that, like Fisher, and those aren't significant contributors to the budget in these journals as through advertising? Advertising uh, for most society journals is a minuscule um, component and another problem is advertising in on the in on the web the electronic version has never worked really very well um, so the advertisers want to advertise in print uh, and advertisers also want to advertise to um, the healthcare profession and so clinical oriented journals make a lot of revenue from uh, advertising basic science journals very little Maybe uh, we should advertise in the Google. Uh, exactly. Uh, I say there are plenty of models for, for <laughs> well, fi- I think recouping the, financial. But the, but the problem there is the revenue per hit, see. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, uh, if we had, um, maybe we have enough neuroscientists, but if we had a thousand-fold more neuroscientists, then it would be a, it would be mm-hmm. a reasonable model. Um, but at the moment, I think we just don't have enough, a large enough community to really for that to work. So, change the topic. I have a, a different kind of question. Uh, what do you think about the idea of knowing who's reviewing your papers, <laughs> or uh, the flip side of hiding who the authors are of the paper that's being reviewed? In concept, it's a nice idea. I think in practice, it's almost impossible. So, my experience with that is that um, people who identify themselves as reviewers, uh, and there are some, uh, and most journals will allow people to identify themselves that they were the reviewer. In most cases, those people will not take papers that they think are not very good because they don't want to sign their names to a bad review. And uh, I've had experience with a a set of such reviewers with their signed and unsigned reviews. And uh, that's an interesting comparison um, so that, you know, you can imagine which is the more critical and which is the less critical. Uh, So I think it actually distorts the process somewhat. in terms of masking the authors, the problem there, that's almost impossible to do because you have to remove the references uh, for the most part uh, because even you know those of us who are not totally ego-driven will tend to reference some of our own work, yes, uh, for, for, for reasons that are meaning, reasonable. Um, so it's easy to identify patterns. And even styles of papers are, are recognizable. So I'm, I'm sure you can imagine people in your field that, if, if you saw a manuscript without their name on it, you could almost guess, sometimes wrong, um, but you would often guess uh, who they are. So I think it's very hard uh, to achieve, but it is certainly true that who the authors are does affect the process. And I think that is more, even more clearly an issue for journals where a lot of papers are sent back without review. Um, you know, so that I think that step is very subject to you know, name recognition, whereas uh, it's a little less of a problem for journals where the majority of the material is reviewed. So I want to switch gears since we're so lucky to have you here. I figured we should talk a little bit about science. We 
have a little bit of time left. Um, so your lab looks at various levels of analysis in the CNS from receptor to synapses to circuits, mostly in two very organized model circuits, the hippocampus and olfactory bulb. Where do you stand on a fundamental organizational principle or modularity in the CNS? Is this, is this even the right way to think about things? Do you have a sort of an overview? I have a bias. A that bias. doesn't make it right. right. That's the right word. Um, so, I mean, I, I like to think about synapses, obviously, from the beginning. And so I sort of imagine these things building from the bottom up rather than the top down. So, um, But that's just my own way of thinking about it. I think it's interesting to think about how to my own interest have kind of moved up slowly from looking at channels to looking at synapses, now to looking at small circuits. And I probably won't get, you know, I don't have enough time <laughs> to get too far beyond that. Um, but, you know, I think that it is interesting now because it seems like we can begin to have an interesting conversation between people whose primary interest is at sort of a cellular or molecular level and people whose primary interest is at a systems or behavioral level. Mm -hmm. And for a long time, I think we were like two completely isolated populations of scientists not really communicating very well. And it seems like there are a lot of practical ways of, of, of doing that. And I think that's exciting. One, one thing to me that makes that um, sort of uh, things that you can take a step-by-step -step approach is, is systems where there is seems to be some sort of... Um, module, if you will, you call it modular kind of aspect to the system. It's one of the reasons I like looking at the olfactory system, because you can sort of imagine some of the modules and how they might fit together. The barrel cortex be another really nice example of that sort of thing, where you can imagine how a module works. Uh, and there are other examples that are less anatomically discrete, um, you know, the systems that, of sets of cells, and we were talking this morning about the para parasympathetic system, and and you can imagine it not just in anatomical terms, but this sort of modules and how, then the, this, the question for us is how, whether once we establish how those work, whether we can actually link those together in a bigger structure, I think, I'm not sure I know how to So what's that going to take? Because do you, do yeah. you feel, uh, feel like maybe theorizing a bit? Yeah, I don't know. Well, I, I don't know that I'm all-knowing in that, but it seems to me that um, understanding how to look at the modules in an intact animal is a really important part of that and and maybe also in in animals other than rodents so that we can you know imagine looking at the modules in primates or humans with you know non-invasive imaging methods and so forth that actually get us down to the resolution that we can see with you know, a, a more in vitro approach so that we can begin to go back and forth and see if the ideas that we're generating by looking at modules actually make sense when, the, when we can observe the whole, the whole uh, system in, in action. So it seems to me that that is becoming more possible, although still not. So you see it as largely a technology-driven... I think so, actually. I mean, I think for the, for the systems level, I think it is technology-driven and being able to see things in intact animals that required, you know, uh, in vitro preparations, essentially, in the past. Um, so, you know, visualizing cells, visualizing circuits, visualizing activity, uh, those sorts of things, I think, are critical. Do you uh, um, see underlying principles that are common between hippocampal circuitry and uh, the olfactory system? Um, 
I would like to think that there are. I mean, I was, uh, you know, in, if you think about one of the reasons I chose the olfactory system to, to devote some of our lab to was because I could see what I thought were, you know, the modular organization, if you will. Uh, it's a little less obvious in, the, in something like the hippocampus or association cortex or, or that sort of area. But I, it seems, I think it's there. And there are a couple of examples that I think make that somewhat more real. The, the recent uh, discovery of the, the grid cells in the entorhinal cortex suggest sort of a, a topography of how, you know, associational inputs uh, connect to uh, the hippocampus, and so that even though it's not obvious when you look at a, a picture of the hippocampus, and essentially it, there are functional modules, they're just not anatomically defined in a way that we easily see them. I think that's a real real trick, and I think a lot of these labeling methods will be fantastic, and, and you can imagine all kinds of modules, like how do one set of interneurons in whatever part of cortex relate to some other area, because they're all intermingled. You can't see the functional module there because it's intermingled with all this other stuff. But if you have ways of labeling them, you may label them and that may bias what you what what you call a module, but nonetheless it gives you a, a view of thinking of this set of cells that are maybe distributed but have a common function. And so I think a lot of these labeling methods may help us see the the modularity, if you will, that's not apparent just in simple anatomical uh, approaches. So at least I hope that that's the case. What do you think about the job of theory in neuroscience? In some sciences, it's possible to use theory to bridge gaps between data sets. And, you know, in cosmology, for example, almost everything is based on theory and experiments are very sparse. And our field is almost the polar opposite of that. We've been very anti-theoretical and empirical, and sometimes... I hear it said that theory has no place whatsoever. Maybe someday, but certainly not now. What do you think about that? Well, I think that you know those are extreme positions. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I mean, I I guess the, the the advantage of theory is if it can actually guide. My, my view of that is whether it can guide in an experiment. Uh, if it can't guide an experiment, it's interesting, um, but it may or may not be meaningful in terms of the system and. I mean, one way of thinking about this is um, um, comparing biology to engineering. Or in the case of engineering, you want to build something. You know what you want to build. It has certain criteria. and But there's, in fact, multiple ways you could build that. Uh, and they'll, at least most of them, if not all of them, will work. Uh, in the case of biology, it's not how one might build a nervous system. It's how this one was built. Um, so I think models may very well recapitulate some aspects of certain parts or, or even all of the system, um, but that doesn't necessarily enlighten us exactly on how it, how it works. I mean, because we can, we can know nothing about how the nervous system works and just observe people and, and say, you know, learn patterns that every time they come to a street, they stop when this light is red. You know, we can pick up that pattern and and analyze something about their behavior without knowing anything really about how the nervous system works or how the visual system works or, or decision-making or any of that sort of thing. Um, so I guess that's my view of that. The, the modeling is it really is most useful when it sort of instructs. And I think there are examples where uh, the theory says, you know, and gives you insights that 
you might not have otherwise gone in that direction. So it's not like just filling in the gaps on small experimental details, but can actually give you, give you ways of thinking about how the structure works overall. I think, you know, in my own personal experience, that hasn't happened to me that often. Now, you could say that's just because I'm not looking hard enough. Um, but in many cases, my feeling has been that a lot of the modeling was did not have sufficient constraints on the biological details to, to give me meaningful information about the, the details. Um, but, I, you know, I think there's a, there's a full spectrum of, of so that. So the Wolfer theory I was thinking about was the kind in which you would take something about which you did have a lot of good biological information, for example, stuff at the cellular and molecular level, and then try to use that to predict an outcome of an experiment at the system or behavioral level, and then test that. And that would help you to understand that the missing, often missing steps that we don't have experimental tools really to visualize yet directly, but you could say, well, I don't know exactly, but my theory says that this should happen in between in hidden layers of, of analysis, and then out at some detectable level of analysis, I could do an experiment. And I would, I, I don't think that happens very often. I'm not positive I could state a single clear example, but, but a mature theoretical framework for neuroscience would do that and would allow you to to use experiments. For example, in, in physics and in, in astrophysics, it's possible to take data that don't seem to be anything about question A and use a theory to predict the, the answer to question A uh, across you know, vast intellectual span and then test that. And if it works, you gain an enormous trust in the, in the theory because it was such a leap. It was such a crazy endeavor to begin with, and for it to work, by chance, seemed, seems almost uh, completely impossible. So I think that... Yeah, I mean, I think that there are more, as, and certainly my own personal experience, as, as you, one looks at different systems or, or cells in different systems, they're different, but there are also many, many similarities, right? And, and how they behave in certain circumstances begins to you know, tell you patterns, at least of cellular behavior, uh, how certain sets of potassium channels or subthreshold uh, currents, how subthreshold currents can influence excitability. I mean, not every cell has the same mixture of those things, but you get a different output as a result of it. And so I think beginning to have a framework of that makes doing the sort of thing you're talking about more real because you're saying, well, okay, I didn't really study this system, but I know these things from the other system. And from all these other systems I've already looked at, there's sort of elements of the same thing that, that the, you know, how the processing of information, it might be a totally different type of information, but the way it's processed, my guess is it's gonna, there's going to be a lot of commonalities. There's like assemblies of neurons also. Just similar assemblies of neurons will have similar computations and similar algorithms. Right. And the inputs and outputs... May be different. May one one be a visual input, the other thing may just be a decision making input. It seems like the bridging the gap between the bottom up and top down um, levels of analysis also comes down to just temporal mismatch and how to how to figure out that level of of analysis and work out where you can go from you know millisecond, microsecond time scales to from like LTP to remembering what you ate for breakfast. 
So do you know how to do that? Because that's, I mean, that's... Uh, I have no idea, Gary. <laughs> well, there's one element. One element is the temporal aspect. The other element is that as you go up in the system, you have more distributed networks. Yeah. And you, if you're thinking in individual modules at the base level, it's very hard to take that analogy into the higher levels of processing because you no longer have those modules set up as cleanly as you do in lower levels. Yeah, I mean, I think there are examples. I mean, this is just, a, again, a simple example. of uh, Once you understand the principle, it can actually change pretty quickly how you think about it. So there used to be this term in the synaptic plasticity field called associativity. You remember this? Yeah. Um, and cooperativity. It, was, it had to do with, uh, you know, the number of fibers you needed to stimulate or, you know, or either at the same time or whatever to, to get... Um, um, synaptic plasticity in the hippocampus. And once we understood how NMDA receptors work in terms of voltage dependence, those terms disappeared completely because the, and also the need for activating multiple fibers because, you know, once you understood how the NMDA receptor worked, one could then get exactly the same phenomenon with a single cell. It was just the only thing the multiple cells were doing was depolarizing the cell sufficiently to overcome the magnesium block of the NMDA receptor. So, you know, that's just from my own personal experience, but it's a really nice example of how we had certain labels we'd put on things or certain things we thought we understood, and then we understood a little bit more about a, a basic mechanism of, of how, in this case, how a receptor worked. It really, you know, it, it changed the whole idea of you have to have multiple cells to do something. In fact, you didn't have, have to have multiple cells. You just need one cell. Um, but I think there are other examples like that where once the, the sort of organizing principle, I guess, my, my point is that this jump between, let's say, modules and distributed networks, there are probably equivalent principles there that once we can you know, get our hands on a few of those, I think will quickly allow us to, to make that transition between those sort of two, if you want to call them, levels of analysis. But That would be great. <laughs> would solve all our problems. Well, thank you so much for coming and for talking to us. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Mm -hmm.